If we looked at our lives very carefully, I think we would see that nearly everything we do, everything we have done, what we have gotten, what we have become, and what we want, is in the pursuit of happiness. Believing that doing and getting and having and becoming that which we have done, gotten, and become would somehow lead us to or result in uh, happiness in our life. We should look a little closer. We spend a considerable amount of our time um, imagining what we would enjoy doing and then we gather the resources and do it and maybe get some fair amount of enjoyment even satisfaction out of it is that happiness is it happiness when we find ourselves wanting what we can't have or wanting more of what we haven't got enough of? In our society and in our culture, in our time, we also spend a considerable amount of time being entertained by others. Whether it's Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or New York or uh, Dharma Entertainment, we like to be entertained. We enjoy it. We get a lot of satisfaction. And in all of the 20, 30, 40, 50, or 60 years that we have been enjoying entertainment, has that brought us a sense of fulfillment and happiness? Or maybe we should look at what we have achieved in our lives, whether it's in the field of academia, or uh, family, or uh, financially, or any other field of endeavor, having pursued and achieved some long-sought-for uh, goal, has that brought us a sense of happiness and contentment and fulfillment in our life? Can enjoyment or entertainment or achievement, even a sense of satisfaction, be happiness or result in happiness? Is happiness, is our happiness dependent on how much we have at all? Or how little we have? Or how famous we are? Or how obscure we are? Or how much pleasure we enjoy? Or how much pain we enjoy? bear. What has happiness got to do with any of these things? It seems to me that when I look at my life and consider where the happiness is in my life, it really doesn't depend on 
things and doing and being and becoming, but rather it depends on my relationship to things. My relationship to myself, my relationship to activities, my relationship to others. And in that relationship, in that looking at where happiness is found in my life, I can see that when I'm open, when I'm connected, when I'm tolerant and patient, when I'm at ease with myself and the environment I find myself in, whatever the conditions, then there's a sense of happiness. There's a sense of contentment, a sense of being fulfilled in that very uh, activity or in that very beingness. Within that, within that relationship to myself and others, the environment, the situation, I can acknowledge my strengths and my weaknesses, my limitations. Limitations or weaknesses don't preclude happiness. In that feeling of contentment and happiness, being at ease with myself, there's a very palpable sense of being empowered, even if I'm not the top man on the totem pole. But feeling seen, respected, acknowledged for who I am, where I am, in the interconnected web of life that we all are part of. So we can see, if we look carefully, that happiness is really not dependent on what we do, our self-centered behavior, or our uh, self-aggrandizement, or even our accomplishments. But it really does point to uh, a sense of fulfillment and contentment, openness, coming from a place or as a result of acting with integrity, being present for things as they are, being open to the way things are, feeling connected to myself and the way things are. Implicit in that interconnectedness and openness respect for myself and others is the understanding that my life is not lived at others' expense. And to the extent that I live my life in sharing and caring for and with others, that's a measure, that is the measure of happiness. There's a wise Hindu sage, recently died in India a few years ago, Nisargadatta Maharaj. And he said, all that you need is already within you. Only you must approach yourself 
with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them, for you are beyond both. How are we to discover this infinity, this eternity, this fullness that we are beyond? We live our lives. We have our lives. They're full. And yet, I'm sure we don't always feel that we are living in and with a sense of eternity and infinity, even in the fullness of our lives. But rather, the fullness of our lives often makes us feel very limited, very small, even petty. When we get full of our life, when we get fed up with our life, when we get um, satiated with our life, we often turn to and find the need for a place in a time like this, a retreat, a time to withdraw from all the busyness of our life, all the uh, activity of our life, so that we can step back from what we are totally immersed in most of the time, and so we can see it from a different perspective, so that we can understand where we have come over the course of time while being involved in our life. And when we come to a retreat like this, we leave behind our family and jobs and homes. We leave behind our roles, who we are in relationship to others. We leave behind our familiar securities and our friends and our activities and our habits, some of them. And we come to a place that's really something like a sensory deprivation zone. And, you know, we're kind of left with nothing but, you know, an achy body and a wandering mind. <laughs> Hardly a place of a lot of enjoyment, achievement, satisfaction, entertainment. And yet, any of you who've done retreats know that there is a subtle happiness and joy that pervades a retreat that really seeps into your life on retreat and that really brings a sense of fulfillment in and within this emptiness. So when we come on a retreat like this and we leave all of our familiar behind, we really come to a place that's isolated, protected, secluded, withdrawn, removed, and it's a place where 
we can allow our most sensitive nerve endings to feel our life, to feel our body in ways that we don't have time to outside, to feel our emotions, to feel our desires, to feel our fears, to feel our joys, to feel our concerns in ways that we're too busy to, we're too full to at home, at work, in the busyness of our life. And so when we come here and we kind of pull back the the defenses and kind of scrape off the crust and let our nerves kind of feel our life, it gets intense. It can be painful. We can feel raw, vulnerable, open, scared at times. And it happens. And so we really need to understand that this is a protected place. And it's protected by our intentions and motivation in being here. Because we come with the intention and the motivation to look more deeply, to really uncover that which is hidden just below the surface of our busyness, just below the surface of our persona that we project out for others to see and take a look within and see what's really going on there. And in leaving all of our systems of support at home, at work, and others, we come here and step into um, a protected place where we really are asked to be content with very little to be content with just a very simple schedule of activity, to be content with just three simple but good meals a day, to be content to be quiet, to be content to live simply just with yourself, just with who you are, without distractions, without bothering to read some books and write some books and fill up your life with activity but just to be with this body that we came into this life with, in this mind, which we have also cultivated in this life. And for many of us, it's not easy to find happiness in this type of seclusion. We see how restless we are, how anxious we are, how much uh, busyness we, our, our minds fill up with even when there's nothing to do here. There really isn't anything to do other than your one or two yogi jobs for 45 minutes. The rest is free time. And yet, I'm sure today you found yourself planning, you know, later parts of the day or tomorrow or what to do after the retreat or when you retire or whatever. The mind likes to keep busy. It's really hard to let go of those habits. But in this solitude, in this place of quiet and protection and isolation, really, it takes a couple of days before we really tune into the fact that we can be alone here. We don't have to meet anybody else's needs. 
We don't have to answer the phone or the mail or write or talk. We can be alone. And often it takes three or four days even before we find out how enjoyable, pleasurable, and satisfying aloneness can be. I don't mean loneliness. That comes off and on too. But I mean the joy or the ecstasy of solitude, of being alone. We're in a group, we're in a community, yes. But within that, we're alone in our own world, doing our own work. And it is work. Let's not be mistaken that we're not doing something really valuable here. And in this seclusion, in this solitude, with this open openness to, to, to life, to the beauty, to the nature around us and within us, it is possible to discover uh, a great joy, a great bliss even in that solitude. Krishnamurti speaks of solitude. He says, the ecstasy of solitude comes when you are not afraid to be alone, when you are no longer attached to anything. Then, like the dawn that came up this morning, that ecstasy comes silently and it makes a golden path in the stillness, which is at the beginning which is now, and which will always be there. The stillness and the ecstasy of solitude. There have been many hermits, monastics, uh, people that have lived in solitude, people that have really preferred a life of solitude, of not necessarily aloneness, but inner solitude, where one really stays in touch with that entity, that beingness within. St. John of the Cross, one in the Christian tradition who um, really understood the life of solitude. He said, the characteristics of the solitary bird are five. First, it soars as high as it is able. Secondly, it can endure no companionship, even of its own kind. Third, it has its beak in the air. And fourth, it has no definite color. Fifth, it sings sweetly. What we're doing here is living the life of solitude, becoming solitary birds with our beaks in the air, flying as high as we are able, singing sweetly of no definite color alone. It's helpful when we begin a retreat like this, when we 
have finally left the busyness of our life and gotten here physically, to ask ourselves to really um, inquire within, what is it that has brought me here? Really? Why have I come? What motivates me to be here now? At this time in my life, at this time of year? And it's not so important that you come up with an answer that you could tell anyone. But it is important that you ask the question. And to really look deeply and not be satisfied with the first answer your mind puts up. We may have been unhappy, or we may be unhappy. We may be looking for a sense of peace, or a promise of peace. We may be just stressed out in our life. We may have uh, some suffering in our life that is just difficult to bear. We may be uh, questioning our life and where it's going. We may be seeing and feeling the end of our life at whatever age. We may just be bored or curious. And any of those are a good enough reason to get you here. But they may not be enough reason to keep you here, to really let you be here and get the benefit of this time for yourself. In reflecting on what has brought us here, somehow we kind of we have to consider what is really meaningful, what is significant for us to do in our life. Because when we step out of time and we come to a place like this that is really timeless, in case you haven't noticed, every day on this retreat is going to be like today. Sit and walk in silence, three meals. That's it. There's nothing to measure time by here. There's no events to look forward to. Nothing happens. We're just with ourself. This sitting or the last sitting, it's all the same. We just have ourselves to be with. So there's no time. So what is worth doing in this space? What is meaningful to do? There's nothing to get, or accomplish, or achieve. If this is really just a trivial pursuit, you won't be able to sustain your energy or interest. If it's a, a goal or a desire or something to achieve, that won't carry you very far either. If you have a personal goal of getting something for yourself, you may get it and be disappointed. Maybe your understanding of what this practice and this time can do is more global, having effect on the world at large. Very noble, no doubt. 
But somewhere in the back of our mind or down below our consciousness, it's helpful to understand that we may have a vision such that this, this person here had 2,500 years ago. And understanding that one can actually live free, that one can actually understand their mind and how it creates happiness and unhappiness, that one can see deeply into the nature of reality and not live in confusion and delusion with fear and grasping. And for most of us, maybe initially that vision and that's what it is for us, certainly not a reality at this point for most of us, but that vision has kind of assumed mythic proportions. And that's okay, because a mythic vision of why, where we can go or the potential within us or the power of this practice is helpful. Thomas Berry says, it's the mythic vision that evokes the energies needed to sustain the human effort involved. Without that mythic vision, we may not be able to sustain our energy. The mythic vision transforms our effort from some laborious chore and drudgery to some joyful, spontaneous willingness to engage in this moment for understanding. So when you find yourself at points in this retreat, really caught in the pettiness of your own life in that moment, irritation or anger or frustration or disappointment, then reconnect with the greatness of the potential within you. And understand that this practice really points us in that direction. And maybe we haven't realized it, and maybe it seems pretty obscure, but it can be a tremendous source of support and inspiration in rather bleak and heavy times, if you have any. In a retreat like this, it is like a sensory deprivation uh, tank of one sort or another. And for most of us, we probably feel and think that that's uh, not so good, or that's unhealthy, or that's too bad. But I recently, well, actually a while back, saw this movie about Stephen Hawking, the uh, astrophysicist that's uh, at the cutting edge of the universe, so to speak, of understanding what's going on or where we all came from. And in the movie about his life, you know, he has this crippling disease where he's physically pretty much completely incapacitated now, but at one time when he was younger in graduate school, he had more capabilities. He could still move his body and talk and, and write. And at that time in his life when he could write and move and talk, he was dealing with certain problems in astrophysics, which many other people were dealing with and working on them and thinking about them and discussing them. And as the disease that he has progressed, and he was at one point then unable to stand and walk about, and then he was unable to write 
and then he was unable to talk. As he, his conditions became more deteriorated and uh, more unable to engage with others, he had to develop powers in his mind to be able to compensate for them, compensate for these, these lacks. And he was able to develop the ability to conceptually think of things, think of problems and think of solutions to problems that no other astrophysicist is able to do. And he attributes it to his, the, the, the requirements placed on him by his body. And so being in a sensory deprivation place like this, where there's nothing to do, there's nothing to see, and there's, you know, there's no music, and even if you walk fast, you can cover the whole turf in you know, 15 minutes. It really is designed to put your mind in, in, into such a condition that it has to develop greater strength, greater possibilities. When we continually repeat our familiar mental, physical habits, we become rather bland and dull and repetitive, and the mind just withers to the familiar. And yet when you challenge the mind and continually challenge it with very demanding conditions and circumstances, the mind grows, the mind becomes strong, the mind becomes bright, creative, alert, in ways that can amaze us. And so work with the limitations of this retreat environment, walking slow, going slow, not communicating, not indulging in sensory distraction, but really putting your energy into developing the power of the mind to know, to see, to, to understand, to feel more deeply what is going on in this life. On a retreat like this, we are alone. We're doing our own work. We have our body to deal with and our mind to deal with. And yet, in this group, each one of us contributes to the other's practice a lot. We affect each other being here. How it's going for you today is going to affect everyone else. Your commitment and intention in practice today is going to affect everyone else. The sincerity of your effort will rub off on and be noticed and visible to everyone else. And not only the sincerity, the intention, the energy, but our understanding, our patience, our love, our compassion. Even though we're not expressing it, it's very apparent and felt in how we move, how we move around each other in the dining hall, how we enter the hall here, how we sit down, how we leave, how attentive we are. And when we leave here, even if we don't say a word about our experience, what we did, how we did, what we knew, what we heard, 
Others around us will feel the power of our awareness. It's palpable. And so the work we're doing here with our mind and our body is not for us ourselves alone, but it's for everyone that we come in contact with and everyone that they come in contact with and it isn't too far down the track before it affects everyone in the world. And so the work we do, it's important to understand that we're not just engaged in some selfish uh, concern for getting something for ourselves. But really this is very um, expansive, really noble, uh, compassionate work that we do because it does affect and benefit the whole world. Albert Schweitzer said, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. And the work we do here is learning how to serve others by coming to know and understand ourselves. I have been asked in the past what someone needs in order to do this practice. What does someone have to believe in order to do this practice? Does one have to be a Buddhist? Does one have to know what the Buddha taught? Or what does one need in order to do this practice to get the benefit of insight? And I'd like to say that you don't really need anything. You can just do it and it'll have its effect. But that's not quite right. I think it's helpful to have an understanding of the law of karma. And the law of karma in the Christian tradition is put uh, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. Well, the law of karma is just about the same thing. You know? If you plant good seeds, you're going to get sweet fruit. And if you plant bad seeds, you're going to get bitter fruit. Our actions and the motivation behind our actions has effects, produces consequences, produces results. Much of our life, much of the conditions in our life are given. You know, we got this body, we're not going to have any other. We've got this life that's going along as it is. And the conditions of that life, it's what we've got to live with. It's what we've got to learn to uh, deal with. It's not going to be a whole lot different in one sense. And yet, how we relate to it, how we learn to deal with the conditions of our life, our body, our mind, our neighbors, our families, our jobs, our intellect, our emotions, how we relate to that is karma. That's action. That's our action in the world. It plants the seeds for future results. And if we learn how to live with the way things are, if we learn to live in harmony with the way the body is, if we learn to live in harmony with the way emotions come and go, 
if we learn to live in harmony with the nature of the mind in its random uh, chaos at times, if we can learn to live in harmony with that and not react with frustration and disappointment and wanting things to be different, then we plant the seeds of happiness. But if we resist, if we struggle against our body and the way it is, the way it feels, if we struggle against our emotion, if we struggle against the thoughts that we have, if we don't want the experiences that are so ever-present, if we struggle against the way things are, we plant the seeds of unhappiness. We can see it. It's not so obscure. This is not some very esoteric uh, understanding. You know, if in your conversations and relationships with others you are very angry and uh, critical and uh, judgmental, you're going to be treated in kind. And it's not pleasant. It's hard to be happy that way. If we're, we're in relationship to others, we're just miserly and stingy and greedy and uh, acquiring for ourselves only, it's hard to ever have a sense of enough. And having a sense of enough and fulfillment is part of the definition of happiness. And so we can see that it's really quite simple understanding of the law of karma that if you want to be happy, then you need to plant the seeds of care and attention and respect and awareness. With understanding the law of karma, and it doesn't have to be some esoteric belief or you don't need to know all the details, but just in a general sense. With that, then I think it's possible to sustain interest in practice, to, uh, to practice with some understanding that the results of this practice is happiness. Yes, we have to deal with the difficult body, the painful body, and the unpleasant mind at times. But that doesn't need, mean that we need to suffer with it. The body is going to be painful, but we don't need to suffer. The mind is going to be painful, but we don't need to suffer with it. If we can see it as it is, let it come and let it go, then we can be free of that reactivity, disliking, disappointment, frustration. And in proceeding with practice, in proceeding with some basic understanding of the Dhamma, of the Buddha's teaching, some level of confidence in understanding what the Buddha said, then we can have a sense of uh, knowing where we're going. I think for many of us, when we first hear the Dhamma, and sometimes it's just a talk, sometimes it's a first retreat, sometimes it's a book, but there can be um, a resonance and a connection with what we hear or what we experience that seems far greater than what little understanding we got from that book or that talk, but a real 
deep connection, reconnection with something that we understand to be true. certainly was for me during my first retreat without ever having heard of Buddhism or any interest in Buddhism and no books or no interest in spiritual practice at all happened to stumble onto a two-week retreat. And it was like I was a dry sponge that finally found water. And it just soaked up this uh, experience and this uh, understanding of the Buddha's teaching. And it just fit. It seemed to fit every pore in my body. And the understanding, even though I didn't, I didn't know it all or I hadn't heard it before, there was a sense of connection with it that was vast, much greater than that. With that connection, with that sense of confidence and uh, assurance that there's something here of real value, really uh, an intuitive appreciation, then I really felt clear about where I was going, what this whole spiritual path or spiritual practice or spiritual life is all about. Really coming to understand that, uh, you know, the spiritual life is not some esoteric life in a cave or in some foreign country or some exotic uh, practice, but rather it's very simple developing a heart that's generous, loving, compassionate, and understanding. The essence of a spiritual life. Becoming clear where it's taking us. You know, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. So it's important to understand what the goal is in practice. And to keep it relatively simple, I mean, it can get pretty complicated pretty quick, but to keep it really simple, you know, to be kind, to be generous, and to understand. Confidence not only points the way in our spiritual life, but it allows us to aspire to it, to actually begin to realize for ourselves the spiritual life, to to live with that understanding and love and compassion and generosity. In the middle of this retreat, it's 13 days retreat, in the middle of this retreat, you'll forget all this. There'll be times when you'll be totally caught up in your own stuff and you'll wonder why you ever came and uh, why you're bothering to stay. There was a woman here last year who did this two-week retreat. In fact, she's done it for a couple of years now. And she had a hell of a time. She just had a hell of a time last year. And, you know, I encouraged her to stay. And, you know, from the, from the second day on, she wanted to leave. And I just encouraged her to stay and, you know, take it easy and settle back and get some, un- tried to give her a little understanding, a little inspiration, a little confidence. And 
you know, let her feel good, but she still had her body and her mind to deal with. And she did manage to stay the two weeks and went home. I got a letter from her last fall in uh, November, and I want to read bits of it to you, just so you can um, remember why you're here. She writes a little personal stuff, but then she says, so here's my story. Four weeks ago today, I was at work, and as I was leaving, I noticed that I was quite chilled, and my nurse friend worried that I might be getting the flu. I discounted that, as I never get the flu. Colds, yes, and sometimes often, but I have never really suffered from flu-like symptoms. That was the last coherent thought I had for three weeks. I don't remember driving home or sleeping, but the next morning I woke and began projectile vomiting and suffered aches in my bones and muscles that I could not believe. My skin ached. I perspired to the extent that my hair became wet from the roots clear to the ends over and over. This went on all week, and I can frankly remember only a couple of lucid moments. During this time, though I don't know when, I had bumped the inside of my left upper arm on an open cabinet. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but by the end of the week, the arm had swollen to catastrophic proportions and I was unable to move it. By Sunday, I finally referred myself to a physician who hospitalized me on the spot, and there I stayed for nine days. What an ordeal. I must admit, as a nurse, I have never really been on the other side, so to speak. I had IVs in both arms and was given round-the-clock antibiotics with IV fluids and morphine in the right arm and a clot-busting drug in the left arm for five days running. I could not roll to either side, and for the first three days I could not even transfer to the commode without assistance. I had a push button for morphine, and often all I did for hours on end was push the button and stare at the clock, counting my ten minutes when I could push it again. I did not sleep for four days due to my extraordinary discomfort. My temperature did not go, go below 102 degrees for three and a half days, mostly staying around 103. The blood draw people came in all too frequently and jabbed painfully about my veins, often unsuccessfully seeking blood to check various vital levels. It was positively ghastly. I felt that I was near death several times, and I confess that I wished that I could die. Anyway, after nine days of expensive and exotic drugs, the situation came under control, and I was able to go home the following Monday. I continued miserably sick all that week. Though I had no further elevated temperatures, I suffered from ice-cold night sweats every one or two hours, awakening in a freezing misery. The ache in my arm was indescribable, and I felt so sick with general malaise that I thought I could not go on. Today is, as I mentioned, four weeks ago to the day that this started, and my mind is finally awakening again. My left arm is somewhat and probably permanently crippled, and I now have chronic pain in it, which is also a new experience for me. At the end of that third ghastly week at home after the hospital stay, I remembered the yogis practicing on retreat and their profound work. I realized that after my retreat, I had never really been able to see that I would actually die sometime. 
and had not even a notion that it could actually happen now, before I was 85 or 90 years old, I was served notice otherwise. I was filled with conscious regret at the many times I could have but did not attend to my sitting meditation. I was horrified thinking back in the hospital how I had actually wished to die without even a thought of concern for my family. I mean this letter not to be a story of my complaints, but rather a significant recounting of a very real set of possibilities that I now know can happen to anyone at any time. If this episode in my life can in any way inspire yogis, I would be humbly gratified. Clearly, the thing to do is to practice, practice, practice. Not meant to raise fear, but just meant to put our life in perspective. We don't know what's going to happen next. And our conditions change without our consent. Learning how to live with the body and the mind in this relatively healthy condition is the beginning. So I urge you to consider that now is the time to practice. Now is the time to really put the energy, to make the commitment for these 13, 12 more days, to really set your mind on a course for these 12 days of energy and awakening. Goethe in speaking about commitment, says, until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectualness. Concerning all acts of initiative, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issue from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come his or her way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. And the same can be said for a commitment to practice. Not hesitating. Being fully present. Committing your mind to this work for this retreat. With such a bold statement of intention and motivation, the unexpected can happen. I mean, deep insight is possible. Let's not imagine that it's so far away deep, profound, liberating insight. The conditions are here. You are here. The commitment makes it possible. On another note, 
but in the same vein. I think this is William Stafford. I photocopied it out of a book, and all I have for the title is Tell. But I think that's one of his books. And it's a poem called The Gift. Time wants to show you a different country. It's the one that your life conceals. The one waiting outside when curtains are drawn. The one grandmother hinted at in her crochet design. The one almost found over at the edge of the music after the sermon. It's the way life is and you have it, a few years given. You get killed now and then, violated in various ways, and sometimes it's turnabout. You get tired of that. Long suffering, you wait and pray, and maybe good things come. Maybe the hurt slackens and you hardly feel it anymore. You have a breath without pain. It is called happiness. It's a balance the taking and passing along, the composting of where you've been and how people and weather treated you. It's a country where you already are, bringing where you have been. Time offers this gift in its millions of ways, turning the world, moving the air, calling every morning, here, take it, it's yours. This life that we lead, it's ours. We can do with it as we want. We have that opportunity for the next 12 days. So I encourage you to, make, to, to actually live your life while you're here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.